Hello and welcome to History of the Netherlands. Now, before you get excited and think, oh boy, today is my lucky day. I get to listen to a story about another Flemish revolt. Well, I need to let you know that this is not a regular episode of History of the Netherlands. No, today we are partnering up with another podcast called History Daily, hosted by a wonderful storyteller by the name of Lindsay Graham. Now, before you get too excited and think, oh boy, today is my unlucky day, I get to listen to an American senator tell me a wonderful story. Well, it's not that Lindsey Graham. No, fortunately for us, this Lindsey Graham is a renowned podcaster famous for shows such as American History Tellers, American Scandal, and now History Daily, a show which definitely tickles the Dutch fancy for naming things exactly how they are by delivering exactly what it promises. History Daily. If we applied a similar naming framework to our show, we would be called History of the Netherlands, six and a bit weekly, sometimes. History Daily is pretty much an on-this-day-in-history podcast, bringing us stories from the past that align with the dates upon which they are released. In the true Dutch mercantile spirit of trade and exchange, We recently took over their feed with an episode of History of the Netherlands, and today we have handed over the wheel to our favourite Lindsey Graham to steer the ship for this episode. History Daily runs a tight ship, each episode being around 20 minutes long, meaning that they're easy to digest while you are cycling from a windmill to the local clog factory, gazing over rolling clumps of beautiful sphagnum and nibbling away on some cheese. In fact, they're so easily digestible that we've ordered two rounds, which we think generally fit the vibe of History of the Netherlands. The first episode you will hear is the story of the Antwerp Diamond Heist, which happened on the 16th of February 2003. This is an incredible yarn, fantastically told, that we think you will love. The second episode will be hearkening way, way back to March 24th, 1603. This is a date which, for those following our podcast chronology, is actually still far, far into the future. But this story is about the death of the English Queen Elizabeth I. She will become an incredibly important figure in the shaping of the history of the Netherlands during its most tumultuous period, the late 16th century, even being formally offered the sovereignty over the United Provinces after the assassination of William the Silent. Um, spoiler alert. If you like what you hear, go check out History Daily wherever you get your podcasts. We've put a link below in the show notes, and History Daily will help remind you each day that something incredible happened to make that day historic. And to anybody out there who's listening to this episode because you found us on History Daily, hello, welcome. Do yourself a favor, pause this episode, scroll back in your feed to episode number one and hit play. You've got a lot of binge listening to do, but we believe in you. That's it from us for now, and the next voice you'll hear will be Not That Lindsey Graham. It's February 17th, 2003. On an overcast Monday morning in Antwerp, Belgium, a security guard approaches the front door of a large concrete building. 
He punches in the entry code, unlocking a set of bulletproof glass doors, and then steps inside the lobby of the Antwerp World Diamond Center. This fortress-like building is the epicenter of the Antwerp Diamond District, a one-square-mile section of the city where over 80% of the world's rough diamonds are cut, polished, and sold. The security guard whistles as he crosses the lobby, his shoes squeaking on the parquet floor. Every day, millions of dollars' worth of diamonds are traded right here in the Diamond Center. And before being sold and shipped, many of the diamonds are stored inside safe deposit boxes, locked in a vault directly beneath this building. That's where the security guard is going, to make sure the vault is secure before the day's trading begins. But the guard's not worried. The Diamond Center's vault is among the strongest in the world. It's defended by ten impregnable layers of security, including heat and motion sensors, Doppler radar, closed-circuit TV cameras, and a lock with over a hundred million possible combinations. Bypassing just one of those layers of security is inconceivable. Overcoming all of them is impossible. The security guard descends two floors in an elevator and emerges in the basement. He twirls his keys around his index finger as he strolls up to the door of the vault. But then he stops. The vault door is ajar. Tentatively, the security guard approaches and peers inside. His stomach lurches. The doors of the safe deposit boxes have all been flung open and their contents ransacked. Loose diamonds and gold bars are strewn across the floor. The security guard spins on his heels and sprints to the nearest telephone. Reports will soon emerge that an estimated $100 million worth of diamonds and gold were stolen from the Antwerp Diamond Center in what the press will dub the heist of the century. But as the diamond industry reels in shock, the authorities will already be following a bizarre trail of breadcrumbs that will lead them right to the group of thieves who almost carried out the perfect crime on February 16, 2003. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is February 16th, the Antwerp Diamond Heist. It's the summer of 2001, three years before the heist of the century. A dark-haired, middle-aged man walks up to the front entrance of the Antwerp World Diamond Center. He nods at the security guard, who recognizes him and buzzes him through. Leonardo Notabartolo is a diamond importer from Italy, who for the past year has been renting an office inside the center. Every morning he comes into work, passes through security, and then disappears inside his office. Occasionally, he can be seen elsewhere in the building, wandering corridors or depositing diamonds in the vault. He's an ordinary-looking person, Caucasian, slightly overweight, wearing plain button-downs with a pen clipped to his breast pocket. Nobody pays him much attention. To them, he's just another face passing in the hallway. But if anybody were to pay Leonardo close attention, they might notice that the pen clipped to his shirt pocket is not a pen at all. It's a miniature camera. And when he takes trips to the vault, Leonardo is not really depositing diamonds. He's documenting the precise layouts of the corridors, the locations of the surveillance cameras, and the combination codes for the locked doors. Leonardo is not a diamond importer. He's a master thief, and his current target is his most difficult challenge yet, 
the impenetrable vault of the Antwerp Diamond Center. When Leonardo first rented his office in the center, he wasn't intending to break into the vault. Rather, he used it as a base to commit other, smaller robberies around the Diamond Center. But a few months ago, Leonardo was approached by a dealer with whom he'd conducted illicit business in the past. The dealer offered to pay Leonardo $130,000 to answer a simple question. Can the Diamond Center's vault be robbed? At first, Leonardo thought the dealer was crazy. After all, he already knows the vault is impenetrable. But then he shrugged and said, sure. He figured it would be the easiest $130,000 he'd ever make. And so, with a miniaturized camera hidden in a pen, Leonardo began taking pictures. And over the course of several months, while posing as an office worker, Leonardo documented everything. The building's layout, the extensive surveillance systems, and most crucially, the vault itself. Then Leonardo reports his findings to the dealer. He tells him that the Antwerp Diamond Center's vault is built to repel the most cunning of thieves. Its solid steel three-ton door can withstand 12 hours of continuous drilling. To even reach the innermost door, a burglar would have to bypass multiple security cameras, infrared heat and motion sensors, light sensors, and a lock with over 100 million possible combinations and an impossible-to-replicate foot-long key. Finally, metal plates on the side of the door form a magnetic field that, when broken, triggers an alarm. And then, even inside the vault, the steel and copper safe deposit boxes require their own keys and combinations. In short, Leonardo tells him the answer is no. Robbing the Antwerp Diamond Center is not possible. The dealer thanks him for his time, and Leonardo believes that's the end of it. But then, five months later, the same dealer asks Leonardo to meet him at an abandoned warehouse outside Antwerp. There, the dealer shows him something extraordinary an exact replica of the Diamond Center's vault, copied precisely from the photographs Leonardo provided. And standing alongside the replica are four men. Not wanting to reveal their identities, the dealer only gives their aliases. The first man is a renowned alarm specialist known as the Genius. Next, there's the Monster, a tall, muscular man and gifted electrician. The King of Keys is a wizened old locksmith and one of the world's best key forgers. Lastly, there's a man Leonardo recognizes from his childhood in Italy, a veteran thief named Speedy. The dealer then introduces Leonardo to the others as the artist. Having constructed an exact replica of the vault, the dealer wants Leonardo and these four other men to practice breaking into it. And once they've mastered that task, the dealer wants Leonardo to orchestrate the world's most daring heist. In exchange, Leonardo will receive a portion of whatever they manage to steal from the Diamond Center. It's an insane plan that any normal person would walk away from. But Leonardo is a professional thief, and he knows this is the job of a lifetime. If the plan succeeds, he will likely end up with millions. So with a twinkle in his eye, Leonardo says yes. It's a Friday afternoon at the Antwerp Diamond Center on February 14, 2003. Most of the center's workers have left for the weekend, but not Leonardo Notabartolo. He takes the elevator down to the vault, where a security guard buzzes him through. Once inside, Leonardo acts fast. He produces a can of hairspray from his jacket and in one discreet motion sprays the heat and motion center with a fine aerosol mist. This simple but effective technique will temporarily disable the sensor for at least 48 hours, 
more than enough time for Leonardo and his crew to do their work. Leonardo slips the can back into his jacket pocket, then exits the vault and walks right past the guard, who has no idea what's just happened. Two days later, in the early hours of the morning on Sunday, February 16th, Leonardo parks his rental car on a quiet side street in the Diamond District. Leonardo is the mastermind of this heist, but he's not as nimble as he once was. So he stays behind in the getaway car, while the other four thieves, the genius, the monster, Speedy, and the King of Keys clamor out of the car, carrying empty duffel bags. With wordless precision, the thieves execute their plan. The King of Keys picks the lock of an adjacent office building. From there, they enter a garden that adjoins the Diamond Center. Using a ladder stashed in the bushes, they clamber up to a second-floor balcony and enter in through a window. Next, they follow a maze of corridors to a darkened stairwell, which leads them down to the vault. Along the way, they place plastic bags over surveillance cameras. Then the genius removes an aluminum slab from his bag and fastens it to the two magnetic plates fixed to the vault door. This allows him to unscrew the magnets without breaking the magnetic field and triggering the alarm. Prior to the break-in, the King of Keys forged a master key to the vault. But he doubts he'll need it. The guards have been getting lazy as of late. So before using his forged key, King checks a utility closet just outside the vault. And sure enough, the original key is there hanging from a hook. With a self-satisfied smile, the king unlocks the door, while the genius enters the combination code gleaned from Leonardo's reconnaissance. The genius turns the handle, and the vault door swings wide open. But next, the thieves will need to step inside the vault, where heat and motion sensors are located. But two days earlier, Leonardo disabled the sensors with a can of hairspray. Still, the sticky aerosol layer won't hide the body heat of four men. So only the monster slowly and methodically steps into the pitch-dark room. He carefully lifts a ceiling panel, and using a pair of tweezers, reroutes the wiring system that controls the sensors. It's now safe for the others to enter the vault. The King of Keys swiftly picks the lock on every safe deposit box, while the other three fill their duffel bags with uncut diamonds, bundles of cash, and gold bullion. Meanwhile, outside, Leonardo anxiously taps the steering wheel, watching the street fill with the pre-dawn light. Finally, at about 6 a.m., Leonardo looks in the rearview mirror and sees his accomplices racing towards him, their eyes flashing with exhilaration. As Leonardo puts the car in gear, he's confident they've just pulled off the perfect crime. Twelve hours later, Leonardo and his longtime associate Speedy are driving along the highway out of Antwerp towards Brussels. The thieves have split up and are heading to Milan, where they plan to regroup and divide the loot. In the back seat of the car is a garbage bag. It's filled with trash, but also contains incriminating evidence, photographs, and various documents related to the heist. They need to find somewhere discreet to burn it all. So they pull off the highway and follow a dirt road to a remote patch of woodland. There, Leonardo gets out and explores the area to ensure the coast is clear. So far, everything has gone flawlessly. But Leonardo is worried about Speedy, his longtime acquaintance. Speedy is known to lose his cool under pressure, and Leonardo hopes Speedy can keep it together until they arrive in Milan. But that's not what happens. When Leonardo returns to the car, he finds Speedy having a panic attack, manically emptying the garbage bag into the undergrowth, hyperventilating as he tries to discard the evidence. Leonardo eventually calms him down, but just as Speedy regains composure, his eyes flash with fear again and says someone's coming. 
It's not just in Speedy's head. Leonardo hears it too. Voices closing in on their location. There's no time to properly dispose of the evidence. The thieves jump in the car and drive off, leaving the trash littered on the ground, praying that no one will find it. In a few days' time, the thieves regroup in Milan and divvy up the spoils. But it quickly becomes clear that something's not right. Many of the bags they pulled from the safe deposit boxes are either empty or contain far less than they expected. Leonardo and his team left the Diamond Center with what they were told would be more than $100 million worth of valuables. But when they take an inventory, there's only about $20 million worth. Leonardo tries to contact the diamond dealer, the person responsible for the whole affair. But the dealer is nowhere to be found. As Leonardo thinks back to the bizarre origins of the heist, it slowly begins to dawn on him that they've been set up. Perhaps Leonardo considers other dealers at the Diamond Center knew about the impending heist. Perhaps they removed their valuables from the vault right before the robbery and now intend to claim they've been stolen. Leonardo thought he pulled off the perfect crime, but now is forced to consider the more likely truth. He and the rest of his team have been made patsies in an elaborate scheme to commit insurance fraud. It's Monday, February 17, 2003, the day after the heist. A 59-year-old retired grocer named August Van Camp is out rabbit hunting when he spots something that makes his blood boil. Somebody has littered on his property. But when he begins cleaning up, he finds documents marked with the words Antwerp Diamond Center. It doesn't mean much to him. Trash is trash. And Van Camp angrily dials the police, muttering about the good-for-nothing kids whom he presumes left it there. Normally, the police ignore Van Camp when he calls them often to complain. But this time, when Van Camp tells them what he's found, they send someone over right away. After the heist, authorities were perplexed. There were no witnesses, and the thieves left behind no fingerprints, no evidence, until they found the trash on Van Camp's property. One of the potential clues is a half-eaten salami sandwich bought from a store in Antwerp. Detectives review security camera footage from the store and identify Ferdinando Fanato, an electrician and convicted thief. Leonardo knows him as the monster. There's also a business card bearing the name of Elio Denorio, an Italian alarm specialist connected to a string of robberies, the genius. Finally, the police find a receipt for a video surveillance system that bears the name Leonardo Notobartolo, the artist. Then a raid of Leonardo's apartment in Italy leads police to the most critical piece of evidence of all, 17 unpolished diamonds stolen from the vault in Antwerp. Soon, four of the five thieves will be in police custody, including Leonardo's longtime acquaintance Speedy, who will be identified as Pietro Tavano. Only the King of Keys manages to evade arrest, never to be found again. In 2009, six years into his 10-year prison sentence, Leonardo Notobartolo gives an exclusive interview to an American reporter. During the interview, Leonardo insists that he was set up by the diamond dealer who organized the heist as an elaborate insurance scam and that his team only made away with $20 million worth of valuables. But the authorities cannot confirm if Leonardo is telling the truth. Many believe he concocted the insurance fraud story to conceal the fact that he stashed away the rest of the $100 million worth of valuables before his arrest. And it has since emerged that Leonardo and his fellow thieves belong to a shadowy network of Italian criminals known as the School of Turin, 
As a result of this discovery, there are many who believe that Leonardo was never approached by a diamond dealer, but that he came up with a plan on his own, and he assembled the crew to help him pull off the largest diamond heist in history. But nothing is certain, because most of what is known about the Antwerp diamond heist is based on the testimony of Leonardo himself. But what's indisputable is that the world's most audacious heist, the robbing of the Antwerp Diamond Center, which took place on February 16, 2003, was spoiled by a bag of garbage. Next on History Daily, February 17, 1815, future President James Monroe presents the Treaty of Ghent to the British ambassador in Washington, marking the official end of the War of 1812. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. It's the early hours of the morning on March 24, 1603. An English nobleman gallops through the dark streets of London, his spurs digging into his horse's flanks. Perspiration glistens on the steed's muscular body, but the nobleman doesn't dare slow down. His future, and the future of England, depends on it. The turrets of Richmond Palace loom up ahead, black against an inky blue sky. The nobleman approaches the gates and announces himself as Sir Robert Carey, one of Queen Elizabeth's closest advisors. The guard lets him through. Inside the palace, Carey rushes through candlelit corridors until he arrives outside the royal bedchamber. The queen's ladies-in-waiting huddle near the door, their cheeks streaked with tears. Seeing their grief-stricken faces, Carey realizes the reports he received are true. Queen Elizabeth I is dead. Carrie knows her closest living relative and heir, James VI of Scotland, is 400 miles away in Edinburgh. Carrie also knows that the first person to bring James the news of Elizabeth's death will likely receive a considerable reward. So Carrie turns and hurries back the way he came. But just as he reaches the palace doors, Carrie finds himself surrounded by 20 noblemen, all members of the Queen's Privy Council, and looking at Carrie with venomous disdain. Among them is the Queen's foremost advisor, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. Cecil knows where Carey is headed, and he has no intention of letting him arrive. In the weeks running up to the Queen's death, Cecil and the Privy Council created a detailed plan for the peaceful transfer of power from one monarch to the next. Their plan did not involve an opportunist like Robert Carey riding out on his own to curry favor with the new king. So they trap Carey in the palace, where he will remain under the watchful eye of guards. For now, Carey is stymied. His rival Cecil has gained the upper hand in the struggle that will unfold in the wake of Elizabeth's death, as competing nobles seek to preserve their status in the new court of King James. During her 45-year reign, Elizabeth I emerged as one of England's most successful monarchs, winning the people's affection by defeating foreign enemies and by preserving peace in a nation bitterly divided between Protestants and Catholics. But one major shortcoming of Elizabeth's reign will loom large at the time of her death, her failure to produce an heir. Without a clear line of succession, there is no knowing what the future holds for England or her people when Queen Elizabeth 
draws her final breath on March 24, 1603. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is March 24th, the death of Queen Elizabeth I. It's February 1559 in London, 44 years before the death of Queen Elizabeth I. On a cold winter's morning in the Palace of Westminster, members of Parliament have assembled to discuss a most pressing matter, finding a husband for the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth I. Since Elizabeth's coronation last year, the 26-year-old's lack of an heir has become a cause of concern. Without a child to inherit the throne, the future of the realm is uncertain, and after years of political and religious turmoil in England, the last thing Parliament wants is more uncertainty. The troubles began some 25 years ago, when Elizabeth's father, King Henry VIII, made England not a Roman Catholic nation, but a Protestant one. Henry wanted a divorce from his first wife, but the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't allow it, so Henry split from Rome, divorced her, and remarried a woman named Anne Boleyn, who later gave birth to their daughter, Elizabeth. Henry VIII's actions sparked a period of religious upheaval known as the English Reformation. Soon, all the powerful positions within the church and government were filled by Protestants, but there were still plenty of Catholics in England who felt persecuted by these reforms. When Henry's daughter Elizabeth came to power in 1558, she tried to appease these Catholics by introducing a more moderate form of Protestantism. And to an extent, it worked. However, Elizabeth's peacekeeping efforts will all be for nothing if she dies without an heir. At present, the next in line to the crown is Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, the Queen of Scotland. Mary is a staunch Catholic. If she becomes queen, England will most likely erupt into civil war. Parliament's solution is to find Elizabeth a husband with whom she can produce an heir. This would cement the Protestant grip on the crown and preserve a line of succession for Elizabeth's so-called Tudor dynasty. So in February 1559, Parliament sends a delegation to petition Elizabeth to consider the question of marriage. The delegates arrive at Richmond Palace, where they kneel before the monarch. Elizabeth is clothed resplendently in a jewel-encrusted gown. Behind her snow-white makeup, the young queen smiles. She thanks the delegates for the visit, but politely declines their request. Elizabeth is fiercely independent and politically shrewd. She knows that if she were to marry, her husband would effectively rule through her, limiting her power. Furthermore, by selecting one suitor, she would likely arouse jealousy in others, thus opening up the possibility of rebellion. Elizabeth believes that to preserve national stability, she must remain unmarried. But it's not an easy decision. Elizabeth is beautiful and intelligent. She has no shortage of handsome suitors, some of whom she develops genuine feelings for. Elizabeth grows especially fond of one nobleman, Lord Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Marrying Dudley would bring her great joy, but Elizabeth is not willing to jeopardize the security of the realm for the sake of her own happiness. For the men in Parliament, the notion that Elizabeth should reign without a husband is unthinkable. It contravenes their deep-rooted ideas about the primary role of women as childbearers and caregivers. 
So short of giving birth to a child, many in Parliament want Elizabeth to at least name an heir. In response, the Queen angrily replies that at this present it is not convenient to name a successor, nor never shall be without some peril unto you and certain danger unto me. Elizabeth is shrewd. She knows that by appointing an heir, she opens herself up to plots of insurrection, as factions might rally around her successor and oust her from power. So instead, she remains silent, ruling as a powerful, single woman in a world dominated by men. But it will soon become clear that the most imminent threat to Elizabeth's power does not come from a man, but a woman, her own cousin, and next in line to the throne, Mary, Queen of Scots. It's February 1st, 1587. Queen Elizabeth I, age 53, sits in a drawing room in Richmond Palace. The Queen's mood is solemn. She has recently learned that a group of Catholic noblemen have been conspiring to have her killed and install her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, on the English throne. Elizabeth hoped that Mary no longer posed a threat to her power. Decades back, following a Protestant revolt in Scotland, the Catholic Mary was forced to abdicate the Scottish throne and flee to England. After she arrived on English shores, Elizabeth had her arrested to neutralize any threat of Mary plotting against her. But while in captivity, Mary became a hero to many English Catholics. In their eyes, Mary is the rightful Queen of England. Elizabeth is a Protestant heretic. Soon, whispers of Catholic plots against Elizabeth began to swirl. Elizabeth dismissed most of them, but eventually her spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham, showed Elizabeth damning letters written by Mary to her Catholic conspirators. In these letters, Mary consented to the Queen's assassination. After reading Mary's treasonous words, Elizabeth was quick to execute the other conspirators, but she's been reluctant to sign Mary's death warrant. Mary is, after all, family. Additionally, Elizabeth fears that killing Mary will only lead to bigger problems, a retaliation from Catholic nations in Europe. But her advisors, including Francis Walsingham, encourage her relentlessly to rid the country of the troublesome Scot. So finally, the Queen signs the order. Seven days later, on February 8th, Mary, Queen of Scots, is executed. Once the axe has fallen, the executioner grabs her severed head, holds it aloft, and shouts, God save Queen Elizabeth. With her greatest rival dispatched, Elizabeth's power seems undisputed and unimpeachable. But more trouble is coming to England. Mary's execution will soon incite a war. It's August 9th, 1588. In the town of Tilbury, on the south coast of England, thousands of troops have assembled to meet an invading army. The 54-year-old Queen Elizabeth parades before her soldiers on horseback, her armor gleaming. And though she appears confident and eager to meet the challenge before her, the Queen harbors nervous thoughts. The execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, outraged the Catholic King of Spain, Francis II. Francis believes Mary is a martyr who was wrongfully executed by Protestant criminals. Shortly after Mary's death, Francis began plotting to oust Elizabeth and restore Catholicism to England. So in May 1588, he sent a fleet of 130 warships to invade. But before this Spanish armada reached English shores, it was met by England's navy. A ferocious sea battle commenced, and just yesterday, at the Battle of Graveline, a fortuitous wind scattered the Spanish ships, and the English forces emerged victorious. 
the English then fell back to defend their coast from the expected ground invasion. Now Queen Elizabeth rides before her troops, her red hair blazing beneath her helmet. She cries out, I am come amongst you not for my recreation, but for being resolved in the midst and heat of battle to lay down my life for my God, my kingdom, and my people. Her words are met with the rattle of swords and the cries of God save the queen. Elizabeth waits for the noise to die down. Then she continues, her voice resonant with conviction. I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. An even louder roar goes up. Elizabeth turns to face the horizon, where the black sails of her enemy's ships threaten to appear at any moment. But no such invasion comes. Elizabeth and her generals soon learn that the Spanish fleet has limped back to Spain, and England celebrates a great victory over its Catholic enemies. For Elizabeth, the news of the defeat of the Spanish Armada makes for great propaganda. The gale that scattered the Spanish ships is dubbed the Protestant Wind, and is held as proof that God is on the Protestant side. Elizabeth is carried through the crowded streets of London on a golden litter, a victory procession rivaling her own coronation in terms of splendor and extravagance. The people of England celebrate her as an almost immortal figure, a mythical virgin queen. And the years following the Armada's defeat will be remembered as a golden age for Elizabeth's reign and for England. The theater and the arts will flourish, with figures such as Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare emerging as the period's leading literary lights. In 1596, the poet Edmund Spencer writes The Fairy Queen, an epic poem paying homage to Elizabeth. Spencer refers to her as Gloriana, an eternally youthful monarch whose beauty and wisdom are unparalleled. But in truth, by the dawn of the 1600s, Elizabeth's beauty has faded. Her hair has almost entirely fallen out, her teeth are black and rotten from a lifelong sugar habit. She cakes her face with white makeup, which cracks around the corners of her mouth and eyes. Despite the patriotic propaganda, Elizabeth is not immortal, and as she approaches 70, her health is in rapid decline. She has reigned for over 40 years, bringing peace and stability to a nation beset with religious discord. Many in England cannot envision a world in which Elizabeth is not their queen. And yet there are some who are doing exactly that. The Queen's closest advisors realize that her reign will soon be over. Their attention turns to the question of succession. Members of the Privy Council, men like Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, and Sir Robert Carey, Earl of Monmouth, begin angling to secure positions of power so as not to lose influence when Elizabeth passes. Cecil begins writing secretive letters to Elizabeth's closest living relative, James VI of Scotland, son of her old enemy, Mary Queen of Scots. Cecil informs James of Elizabeth's condition, effectively lining him up to succeed the ailing queen. But no decisive action can be taken until the queen actually names her successor. And by March 1603, this is looking increasingly unlikely. Elizabeth's condition has worsened. Her throat is now swollen, and she is unable to speak. In her final days, Cecil, Carrie, and her other advisors crowd around her sickbed, their eyes red from weeping, their legs stiff from kneeling, praying for the queen to speak. But she never does. With time running out, Cecil makes a move. He suggests James VI as a potential heir to the throne. In response, Queen Elizabeth manages to raise a withered hand in a gesture of approval. Soon, Elizabeth will die childless. But with her successor named, 
Her death will trigger a scramble between her former advisors, all jockeying to secure positions of power in the court of the new king. It's early morning on March 24, 1603. Sir Robert Carey prowls the dark corridors of Richmond Palace, searching for an unguarded exit. Hours ago, Queen Elizabeth I drew her final breath. After her death, Carey intended to ride to Scotland to inform James of his succession, thus currying favor with the monarch and guaranteeing himself a position of power. But his plan was derailed. Carey's rival, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, found out about his scheme and forbade him from leaving the palace. Cecil is the senior noble, with executive authority over the royal guards. If Carey wants to escape the confounds of the palace, he will have to do so by stealth. But lucky for Carey, a familial connection comes in handy. His elder brother, Henry, the first baron of Hunsdon, is also in the palace. Henry stands to gain from his brother securing favor with James, and Henry holds more authority than his younger brother. So he escorts Carey to the palace gates and orders the guards to let him through. On his way out of Richmond Palace, Carey passes by a low window. A woman leans out. It's Carey's sister, Lady Philadelphia Scrope. As Carey rides by, Philadelphia throws him something. A ring, pried from the dead finger of Elizabeth I moments before. This ring will prove to James VI that the Queen is dead and that the crown now belongs to him. With the ring in hand, Carey gallops into the night, bound for Scotland. By the time Cecil and the other lords realize he's gone, it's too late. Carey completes the 400-mile journey in a remarkable three days. He reaches Edinburgh in the dead of night. Exhausted and disheveled, Carey staggers into Holyrood Palace and kneels before James, presenting him with Elizabeth's ring and addressing him for the first time ever as King James I of England. Carey's efforts are duly rewarded. The king offers him exactly what Carey wanted, a prestigious position in the new court. James's succession marks the end of the Tudor dynasty and the beginning of the Stuart period, one of the most turbulent in British history. Following Elizabeth's death, England will be plunged into a chaotic era, one characterized by gunpowder plots, civil wars, and great plagues, leaving many in the country longing for the strong, wise leadership of Queen Elizabeth I, which ended with her death on March 24, 1603. Next on History Daily, March 25, 1807, the British Parliament abolishes the slave trade in the British West Indies. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Derek Barons. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship, Pascal Hughes for Noiser. <laughs>